lyrics to dwell on and to meditate upon. And tonight, as we think about the death of Christ on the cross, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1205. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at just verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18 reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Father, as we come and we look at your word, we pray that we would meditate on the glories of Calvary. And Lord, that we would see in your cross the heart of the gospel and the saving love in this redemptive plan. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Good Friday is the day on which we annually observe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says much about the death of Christ. Though Jesus walked only some 33 years, the gospel accounts concentrate primarily on the last three and a half years of his life. But of those last three and a half years, the gospel accounts focus primarily on the last week of Jesus' life. When we look at the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, approximately 40% of their content focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And that percentage increases to roughly 66% when we consider the gospel of John. And of that last week of Jesus' life, the Gospels primarily focus on the final three days of Christ's life on earth. You see, the focal point of the Gospel accounts is the death and the resurrection of Christ. The, the heart of the Gospel account, if you will, is, is not the exemplary life of Christ, though that's certainly a reality but the atoning death of Christ. One author wrote this, he said, if the Gospels were simply biographies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we would expect a more balanced treatment of the various seasons of his life. But this is not what we find a vastly disproportionate focus is given over to the last week of Jesus' life as if to say, whatever else you miss, please don't miss this. The Gospels focus on the death of Christ. But this focus on the death of Christ does not end, does not stop at the conclusion of the Gospels. The epistles demonstrate that for the earliest followers of Jesus, the cross is vital, crucial, not to be missed, and much to be celebrated. 
And we see this in Paul's writings. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of Christ's death as a matter of first importance. In chapter 1 and verse 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified. And in chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What quickly becomes clear is that the New Testament as a whole pulsates with this witness of Christ's atoning death. So the question is, the question before us tonight is, why does the New Testament focus so heavily on the death of Christ? What is so significant about the the death of Jesus? Certainly his death was a historical fact. 1 Peter 3 tells us that he suffered to the point of death. But in and of itself, one man dying is a somewhat unremarkable fact. You see, because countless numbers of people, hundreds of millions throughout the history of the world have died. And so death is a common and an inevitable experience. And so then the question becomes, what makes the death of Christ any different? What makes the death of Christ so significant, so profound, so meaningful? What makes it so worthy of our remembrance and our celebration? What is it about the death of Christ that brings us here together tonight as the people of God to remember the death of Christ and to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Peter answers these questions. In 1 Peter 3.18, the Apostle Peter describes the significance of the death of Christ in one of the most concise presentations of the gospel in all of scripture. This verse has appropriately been called one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament for the meaning of the cross of Christ. What makes the death of Christ so meaningful And so worthy of our remembrance. In this passage this evening, we will see three distinct features of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which provide for us an opportunity to reflect on the work of Christ on the cross. Three distinct features. And the first distinct feature of the death of Christ is that it was unique in its power. That it was unique in its power. Look at verse 18. We read, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ suffered and died for sins. His death was an atoning death. In the Old Testament, the the nation of Israel was commanded by God 
to practice animal sacrifices throughout the year. And from the book of Leviticus, we know that there were sin offerings and guilt offerings and burnt offerings. But despite these various offerings and despite the various nuances that distinguish these sacrifices, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament had one thing in common. None of them were able to take away the guilt of sin. And Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, God had commanded these animal sacrifices to be done to atone for sins, but they did so only temporarily, which is why these sacrifices had to be offered day after day, year after year, decade after decade. Why? Because it is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins. But Peter tells us in verse 18 that the sacrifice of Jesus was unique in its power because the sacrifice of Jesus was offered once for sins, only one time. This word once, it refers to a single occurrence that is decisively unique. It's a special word that refers to something that cannot be repeated in history. Christ suffered and died for sins once for all. That is, once for all time. And this once for all sacrifice of Christ stands in contrast to that Old Testament sacrificial system. And it shows us that the death of Christ was absolutely sufficient. In Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author writes, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, over the centuries, the Jews had slaughtered millions of animals to atone for sin. It's estimated that on the, the Passover celebration, there were over 250,000 sheep sacrificed every year. But now Peter said these sacrifices are no longer necessary. Why? Because Christ's death was unique in its power. His death was sufficient. One author wrote this. He says, The suffering of Christ was unique and definitive in that he offered himself as a sin offering once for all. Peter says that Christ's death was unique in its power. How so? In that his death was final and all-sufficient to accomplish the forgiveness for all who believe in him. 
He does not need to offer another sacrifice. His death was sufficient. His death was all that was necessary to take away the guilt of our sin. Christ's death was unique in its power. But there's a second distinct feature. And the second distinct feature of the death of Christ is that it was substitutionary in its nature. It was substitutionary in its nature. So Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here we see that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless for the sinful. And we understand the concept of a substitute. A substitute stands in the place of another person to do or to experience something instead of that other person. Jesus died, Peter says, as a substitute for sinners. Look at verse 18. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ died for sins. This is a, a phrase again that points back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the priest offered the animal to make atonement for sin. But here in verse 18, it, it's not an animal that was the burnt offering, it's a person. The offering was the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says that, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sins. But why did Jesus have to die for sins? You see, the Bible teaches that, that God created and owns everything. And because of that, he is the Lord and the judge of all the universe. God is perfectly holy, and, and as a God of holiness, he requires perfect obedience to his law. But man has broken his law. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. And therefore, as a holy judge, God must punish sin. And what is the, the punishment for sin? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so God, because he is holy and because he is righteous, he is a God who, who will not compromise his justice for any reason. Because he is just, no sin committed in this world can go unpunished. So mankind is Guilty and, and death is the, the penalty for sin that must be paid. But we see here that Jesus paid the penalty for sin for all those who would believe, and he did so by dying on the cross. And notice how Peter draws out this substitutionary nature of Christ's death. Look at verse 18. 
He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter says that Christ not only died for sins, but he died for sinners. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. By saying the, the righteous for the unrighteous, Notice that, that Peter is directing our attention to the, the character of the sufferer as well as the character of those who would benefit by his suffering. Peter calls Jesus the righteous. He's emphasizing Jesus' moral perfection. He's emphasizing the fact that Jesus was sinless. You see, throughout God's word, we see that Jesus is perfectly righteous. In 1 Peter 1.18, Jesus is compared to as a lamb without spot or blemish. In chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter says that Jesus committed no sin. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as holy, innocent, unstained and separate from sinners. You see, Jesus Christ was absolutely free from sin in thought, in word, and in deed. Nothing he ever did or didn't do fell short of God's holy standard of perfection. He always loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as his, himself. Christ was sinless. And this is so important to understand because his sinless life of, of perfect obedience was absolutely necessary for him to be a suitable substitute for sinful man. You see, Jesus could not die on behalf of his people if he himself were stained by sin. His perfect active obedience to God's law was necessary in him dying as the lamb without spot or, or blemish for sinners. And, and then Peter calls us unrighteous. In contrast to the, the righteousness of Christ, he calls us unrighteous. In contrast to Christ's sinlessness, he calls us sinful. Right? We fall short of God's holy standard in thought, word, and in deed. And for that reason, we need a substitute. As D.L. Moody once said, there is not a ray of hope for man outside of substitution. And that ray of hope is found here in that Peter says, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Christ died for sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, that word, it means in place of or on behalf of. And it refers to an action done for the sake of someone else. Christ died for the sake of sinners. Christ died in place of sinners. He died instead of sinners. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. The innocent for the guilty. The godly for the wicked. The righteous 
for the unrighteous. In 1 Peter 3.18, we see that at the heart of the gospel is the substitution of Jesus for all who put their faith in him. Charles Spurgeon said, Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It's the very heart of it. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute. See this tonight. He died to satisfy the justice of God by paying the penalty for sins on behalf of all who would come to him by faith. Being innocent, he died so that we, being guilty, may live. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied this substitutionary death of Jesus nearly 700 years in advance when he says these words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died as our substitute. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, on the cross, the Father imputed the sins of his people to the Son. What does that mean? It means that the Father treated Christ as if he had committed the sins of all those who would ever believe in him by laying the guilt of our sin upon Christ's shoulders and causing him to pay the penalty for our sin. And then in this great and amazing exchange, God treats us as if we had lived Christ's life of perfect obedience, though in fact we are nothing but sinners in ourselves. One author wrote, the Lord Jesus took our place that we might have his peace. And he took our sin that we might have his salvation. In the words of that great hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Dear Christian, the, the good news of the gospel is that Christ that God in Christ substituted himself for you. 
that he paid your sins. And so Peter can say in chapter 2, verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, and by his wounds, you have been healed. You have been forgiven. One commentator wrote this, and I love it. He says, the one man whose perfect righteousness meant that he never deserved to die, endured the pains of death on behalf of those who deserved to die. In our place condemned, he stood. So what is Good Friday all about? It's about the substitutionary death of Jesus for sinners. It's about the, the good news that God sent his son to take your place and to bear your punishment on the cross so that the justice of God is satisfied by the death of his son for you. The good news of the gospel is that we, the unrighteous, can be righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. You see this amazing reality that, that salvation is not about what you do for God. Salvation is about what God amazingly has done for you in Christ on the cross so that Jesus can say, it is finished. Their sins are atoned for. The good news of the gospel is that although none of us are worthy, by God's grace, those who believe in Christ will find for themselves an all-sufficient Savior and a substitute who has taken him upon himself the penalty for your sin. As the hymn writer penned, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Why? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The death of Christ was substitutionary in its nature. So we've seen that the death of Christ is unique in its power. He died once. And it's substitutionary in its nature. He died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the third and final distinction of the death of Christ is that it was redemptive in its purpose. Look again at verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That, that phrase, that he might bring us to God, gives us a, a clear and concise statement of Christ's great once for all death on the cross on behalf of sinners. Why did Jesus die on the cross? That he might bring us to God. See, the death of Christ was redemptive in its purpose. It was restorative. Isaiah 55, or sorry, 59 2 
says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Ephesians 2 says that the unbeliever is, is dead in their sin, separated from Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. You see, mankind's fundamental need is to be restored to a right relationship with his creator. And Peter tells us that Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? For what purpose? That he might bring us to God, that he might bring us back into an intimate, personal re relationship with the God of this universe who created us to be in relationship with him forever. This phrase was used to describe court officials who controlled access to the king by verifying that, that someone had the right to, to come before the king or to introduce them to the king for the first time. And Peter says, when Jesus died on the cross, he provided us access into the presence of God. But notice that Jesus didn't simply verify our right to come before God. He provided our right. He gave us our access to God. It was because of his death that we now have access to God that our relationship, which was marred by sin, is now restored. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way to God. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to eternal life with God. Acts 4 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring us into a right relationship with God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Christ's death was redemptive in its nature. And this is what salvation is all about. Salvation is all about getting us to God. You see, Christ died so that those who would believe in him can be forgiven of their sins and restored to a personal relationship with God. You see, what makes the gospel good news is not simply that our sins are forgiven or that we get out of hell or that we don't feel guilty anymore. Those are undoubtedly sweet and amazing realities of the gospel. But, the, but ultimately, the good news is good news because it restores us to a right relationship with God. The good news is that God gave his son for us to bring us into an eternity of seeing and knowing and loving and worshiping God. Why? Because he created us, he made us, and he saved us. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He did not simply die. Three days later, he rose again, the Father affirming and confirming that he was the unique and substitutionary sacrifice that we needed to be forgiven of all our sins and cleansed of all our unrighteousness. See, Christ's death was unique in its power in that his death was final and all-sufficient to accomplish the forgiveness of all who would believe in Jesus. It was substitutionary in its nature. He stood under the wrath that we deserved because of the penalty of our sins so that anyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Christ's death was redemptive in its purpose so that through faith, he restored unworthy sinners to a right relationship with their creator. Those who take refuge in Jesus Christ, those who take refuge in Jesus Christ have found an all-sufficient Savior for their sins and have been restored to a right relationship with God. And this precious truth of the redemption that we have through the death of Jesus Christ is what we come to remember when we celebrate Good Friday. 